0: eavesdrop on experts a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights it's where expert types obsess confess and profess i'm chris hatsis let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world one lecture one experiment one interview at a time if you want to get something done do you prioritize getting it done quickly or taking your time to get every detail right think about your answer to that would the same apply if you were, for example, an activist in a country where democracy is on the decline? Dr. John Postel is an expert who's given years of thought to this, particularly in the fields of digital activism and technopolitics. John is a senior lecturer in communication at RMIT University and Digital Anthropology Fellow at University College London. John's new book is titled The Rise of Nerd Politics and was the subject of a lecture and discussion recently at the University of Melbourne. Our reporter Steve Grimwaite spoke to John about the pros and cons of digital and data-based activism.
1: Dr John Postel, welcome to Eavesdrop on Experts. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. First off, we need to consider who we're talking about when we think about nerds and politics. Uh, You talk about tech poll nerds, and you also talk about pro-democracy nerds. Um, what are the defining features of the nerds that you've been researching? Yeah, the people
2: I'm calling nerds, I'm using it as a shorthand for techno-political nerds or tech poll nerds. I, I'm, I've been studying those Uh, political actors, activists, digital lawyers, politicians, other types of people who are very keenly interested in the intersection between technology and politics. So hackers are are a a well known example, or hacktivists, i.e. hackers who get into activism. But there are other types of political actors, uh, say, for example, religious leaders who become interested in the internet and in issues to do with uh, digital freedom, for example, censorship and so on, who become the sort of people I'm calling uh, tech poll nerds or techno-political nerds.
1: Is it worthwhile sort of crossing out hacker politics and working out how that's different from nerd politics? Is there a difference?
2: Yeah. What I'm doing in the book is that I'm saying that there's some really good work that's been done on hacker politics, work by people like Chris Kelty or Gabriela Coleman, who've worked on geeks, hackers, anonymous, and so on. Um, But the way I look at nerd politics, I see it as something broader than simply a focus on geeks and hackers. Geeks and hackers are certainly very important in that world, but we also need to look at some people who wouldn't even know how to write a line of code or hack a computer to save their lives. Uh, People, for example, such as sociologists or artists or as I mentioned earlier religious leaders who become interested in issues to do with internet freedom digital rights uh, and then they they very often end up hanging out with geeks and hackers so together I think we need to look at the the interactions between geeks hackers and others who operate within that world of nerd politics but, but they may not be computer experts
1: We wouldn't uh, be working at a university if we didn't come up with an acronym. So uh, you've come up with the acronym, or maybe it existed previously, of CLAMPERS.
2: Yes. I wasn't looking for an acronym. Uh, Most of us in academia uh, dislike acronyms quite intensely for, for good reasons, but in this case... Uh, when I started looking at the main forms of knowledge or expertise that, that operate within the world of nerd politics, say, for example, within the work that WikiLeaks does or the work that the Occupy movement did, I, when I looked at this comparatively in different contexts, different countries, uh, there were five forms of expertise that, that came up that, that were quite re- recurrent in this world, namely computing, law, art media, and politics. Um, they didn't quite come out in that order initially, but playing around with those uh, with those letters, Scrabble-like, uh, I realize it, if you put them together, it sounds like CLAMP, C-L-A-M-P. Uh, and then this brought me nicely to the comparison with hacker politics. I thought, well... Uh, nerd politics, the the phenomenon I'm calling nerd politics is probably best described as clamper politics because these people bring those various forms of expertise to bear on the actions, the political work that they're doing. To give you a quick example of this, when Edward Snowden famously released uh, all that data from those databases from the National Security Agency in the U.S., the famous 2013 uh, Ed Snowden leaks, uh, he teamed up with uh, journalists from The Guardian. Uh, there was also a documentary filmmaker. Uh, there was legal expertise there. There was media expertise. So it was what I, what I would call a clamping uh, action there was there was that interdisciplinary expertise that came to bear on on this particular particular action it wasn 't simply uh, all about edward snowden 's computer expertise
1: what 's necessary for that ecology to be successful because I guess there's a there's various dynamics at play between individuals in all those scenes um, Is there something that helps glue them together uh,
2: normally, what happens is that some event, something that happened in the political realm or in the, in the world of Internet activism, something uh, had an impact. It caused an outrage. It politicized people. Uh, for example, in the spanish case i 've done a lot of research in Barcelona looking at uh, nerd politics in in Barcelona and in Spain generally. What happened in Spain, to give you a quick example was that the internet these internet freedom activists, these digital rights activists were fighting against uh, an internet bill that they saw as restricting the freedom of Information, the ability to exchange uh, digital content online. It was a so-called anti-piracy bill that they saw as as being a form of of censorship, as the state overreacting and penalizing artists and ordinary citizens who wanted to free, freely share information online. So when they, when the government in Spain, well, when the major political parties in early 2011 went ahead and signed this bill into law. This caused an outrage, uh, an outrage within nerd politics circles, within Internet freedom circles. And it brought together a lot of people from different backgrounds, legal background, artistic background, etc., who then said, well, if we want to defend the Internet, we're, we're going to have to change the political system. We need a, re, a really democratic system whereby uh, we can move on from the corrupt politics that we have now. And that was the birth of the Indignados movement, which then became or, or was transplanted to the U.S. and became the Occupy movement.
1: I love it. I think you talk of four phases of development in those actions, and it's, uh, it's from digital rights or a, a, a pinprick of pain in a, in a digital sphere, which leads to a social protest space, which then moved on to the Indi- indignados movement, which then lent, lent itself or developed into a politi- formal political party.
2: Yes, there are two things going on here. On the one hand, you have this linear narrative whereby it, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, the people I'm calling nerds, these techno-political nerds, were busy in two spaces of nerd politics, namely digital rights and data activism, i.e. freeing data for for civic purposes. So that was back in the 80s and 90s. More recently, what's happened in many countries, starting with Iceland, Tunisia, Spain, and then in other countries, uh, is that the... Growing numbers of nerds who realized began to realise that the political system needed to be hacked, i.e. improved, that there had to be an overhaul of so-called democracy, that a new form of democracy was needed for the 21st century. So they moved to the social protest space. And from there, in countries like Spain, Taiwan, uh, Iceland some of those nerds who'd experienced the social protest uh, movements then thought well now it's time to enter the institutions now we need to form new political parties nerdy political parties such as the pirate party or or its equivalent in Spain Partido X or we need to find other ways of entering the institutions the the formal the, the field of formal politics
1: it's interesting because there's this play uh between the old institutions and the new modes? And what's important in either sphere, in old and new? From
2: a nerd perspective, we need to move on to a new era of politics, uh, 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 a participatory form of democracy, more distributed form of democracy. But there's a problem there because you're always going to have a tension, uh, certainly in democratic systems, in representative democracies between that and And the elected parliament, electoral politics, um, representative politics. Um, So I think what we need to see more of is what I like to call, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, strategic part nerdships. actions, initiatives that, are, that, are, that bring together nerds and non-nerds, All good old-fashioned politicians who were elected through, the, through a, a traditional political party, if you like, and perhaps nerds who are coming to politics f- via a different route. So we need more of those. We need both nerds and non-nerds to work together.
1: Is this actually just old-fashioned uh, political activism plus digital activists? I mean, if we went back in time and went to the 60s, 70s, 80s, pre-20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you would have have had lawyers, you would have had, uh, you know, helping out, you would have had social theorists, you would have had ground troops, I mean, you would have had all these people, but now you've just got new media. Yes. uh... In that sense,
2: you, you could say there's nothing new under the sun in the sense that, yes, you'll always, you will always need different forms of expertise. Um, th- what's different is not only the technology, but also ideas that are coming from the world of free software the free culture movement um, ideas to do for example with copy left as opposed to copyright. These are quite new. This is, this is coming from the free software movement notions to do with the, the right to share your content uh, to, to liberate your content to as an artist, for example, to, to, to make something, produce something and the ability to uh, free it with a, with a license in which anyone can have free access uh, to to copy and share that content as long as you acknowledge through various forms of licensing where it's coming from. Wikipedia is the best example. Wikipedia is one of the top five websites competing with with major platforms like Google or Facebook. And it's an example, it's a really good example of this uh, free software slash free culture uh, ideology.
1: Isn't that where this all began for you? I mean, didn't you go to uh, Barcelona in the first instance to study that and then all of a sudden it morphed into something else due to the, the times they were changing?
2: In my case, it was, it was serendipity because initially I was invited to Barcelona to study social media and, and activism uh, in a broad sense. Once I, I got to Barcelona in 2010, I had three options. I could either study nationalism, uh, animal rights, or digital rights. I had three forms of civil rights that that were being, um, that were quite um, active at the time.
1: And you had completed your PhD at this point? Were you just doing more research? Yes, this was my,
2: oh, that would have been, I suppose it was my second or third postdoc, if you can call it that, if, if at this point we can still keep calling them postdoctoral. Uh, re- yeah, I, I, my my PhD was in 1990, I completed in 1999, 2000. So this was 10 years after having completed my PhD. But it felt like another PhD. It was it was great fun. And then so I decided to study digital rights. Uh, I'd done nationalism before, and the animal rights scene was, was dying down a bit at the time. And I thought, well, this digital rights business, I don't really understand it, but it seems to be emerging. It seems very dynamic. And what happened is that once I'd settle down to study this particular small scene, after a few months studying the scene, I thought I had it. I thought I had my topic uh, uh, lined up. But then, as I explained earlier, these same nerds or, or free culture activism activists uh, decided they would now switch from, if you like, um, internet politics to politics writ large, to the general politics of the country? How do we change the system so that we can really protect the internet?
1: It's interesting. I think we'll get to speak about your experience of other countries uh, soon. But you wrote uh, somewhere that you're in Spain during a period when they were reconceptualising the practice of citizenship at a time of rapid technological change. Um, Do you need to be free of those past political structures to achieve change? Or It's interesting because every culture is different, every society, and it seemed like this is post-Franco, so things were changing dramatically.
2: Yes, what happened, there was a very funny moment in Spanish politics around about 2010, 2011. It it was a bit like the Truman Show. I don't know if you've seen the film The Truman Show, Mm -hmm. when suddenly Truman realises that... Um, he he's living. He suspects there's something going on. He's he's living. He's been brought up in this giant TV studio, but he's suspecting that something's not right. One of the activists in Spain described the Indignados movement as a bit like the Truman Show. Suddenly we woke up and we realised, oh, this is not a real democracy. Uh, these political elites. Uh, have this revolving door systems with the financial interests um, and, and the media, the mainstream media. And this is not real democracy. We need real democracy. So in that sense, what's happened in Spain quite dramatically, more so than in the U.S. with its Occupy movement, more so than in most other countries, what's quite fascinating about the Spanish case is that it's become a a, a massive laboratory of new forms of understanding politics. They've taken the experience from the squares to um, the institutional, to formal politics. To give you a quick example, local government now in Spain is run by Indignados, the, the major... Uh, local governments of uh, municipalities of Madrid, Barcelona, Bilbao, the major cities and smaller cities in Spain are now in the hands of new political parties or platforms that came out of this the protest movement.
1: And so, the protest movement is what you are call, or what is called, Indignados. Indignados. It's not a that's not a political party name.
2: The Indignados is is a very diverse protest movement uh, based on occupying the squares for about a month, and after that, it continued to evolve. And there's a big debate among the indignados about where to go next. Some of them stuck to the original idea that the, they'd never do representative politics. What they need, what was needed was a completely different system. Whereas others said, well, before we can change the system, we need to get get in there through the electoral route. We need to 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 win uh, elections, and that's how. A political party, the political party Podemos at the national level, but smaller parties and platforms at local level uh, started contesting elections and, 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 and have done really well, remarkably well.
1: Your publisher wanted less theory and more stories. Um, and I was interested in how that, how that changes uh, things for you as an academic. I mean, surely as a, an anthropologist, your work is human centric and, and stories are at the centre of humanity.
2: Exactly. Um,
1: I suppose my
2: mistake, with hindsight, was to to think when I submitted my first book proposal to Pluto, it, looking at it now, it was it was it was too theory heavy. It was driven by my desire to develop field theory, what's known as field theory. Uh, so I thought I would put the. The materials I had gathered to the service of of developing this theory, and they the response was yeah that 's all very well, but could we have more stories? Could we perhaps have it the other way around? You could still have your theoretical uh, dimension, but we we 'd like to 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 have more stories, and that 's what i did i 'm really glad they said that uh, because that allowed me to uh, to draw from a, a, quite a rich set of materials, both from the, the places where I'd done fieldwork, namely Spain and Indonesia. I also did quite a lot of fieldwork in Indonesia. But I could also use secondary materials, work that had been done by other people, PhD theses, published books and so on, to to bring out other case studies uh, and and um, compare them with the, the ones that I'd done firsthand.
1: If you had to find a narrative that was emblematic of the way these nerds are changing the world, what would you choose? Would it begin with the line, it was a cold night in the Puerto del Sol as cardboard covered the cobbled streets?
2: That could be one way to start it. That that was a, a turning point. And in fact, some of those pioneers, some of those first people, the famous first 40 people to occupy the main square of Madrid, the Puerto del Sol square, uh, quite a few of them were actually nerds uh, who came from a from a hacker hacktivist background or more general ner- nerdy background who who saw this as an opportunity to start afresh to try something else inspired by the by the arab spring by the occupation of tahrir square in 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 cairo in egypt
1: what I love particularly about this, and I'm getting this in a number of conversations in a number of different spheres, is that, you know, while your, your book might be tracking, you know, technology nerds as transnational actors, however, it seems like your, your long-term research is showing that while these are very cosmopolitan people, their impact in activity is incredibly local. Exactly, I use a term
2: that I borrow from Tarot, which is rooted cosmopolitans they are most of these people follow international events they are well traveled they speak several languages, many of them, but they still because they 're so pragmatic, most of them, they realize that their best chance of making a difference of implementing or, or achieving concrete changes is through acting. Uh, locally or domestically within the the national system, Uh, particularly in those cases in which they're looking at reforming or revolutionizing a political system. In some cases they they'll say well we'll start with local local government and then we'll move up we'll move up to regional and, and national government levels. In other cases they go straight for the for the national which doesn't mean there's, there's there's no transnationalism. There is. There is a lot of transnational borrowing and in some cases some of the major actions were transnational. Uh, there was actually a moment At the end of 2010, throughout 2011, that was a very international, transnational moment. And then after that, from 2012 onwards it became more domestic. People became more concerned with with domestic political struggles.
1: I mean, you've mentioned before how the Indignados movement was a precursor to the Occupy movement. I mean, maybe you'd like to speak about how they're different and how different nations approach these concerns in their own way.
2: Yeah, that's a big, it's an important and and complex question. One major difference is that um, the Indignados, as I just mentioned, uh, moved on from the the square phase of the movement to being more pragmatic about concrete uh, initiatives that w- that would get them into into government and achieving those successes both both at local government and national level in Amer- in the US it 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 went quite well in the sense that it uh, Bernie Sanders a lot of that occupy Momentum was channeled through Bernie Sanders, but of course, as we know, Bernie Sanders lost to Hillary Clinton, who, in turn, you may recall, lost to uh, Donald Trump. So that was one one big difference. That the the Spanish well, for a start, perhaps the Spanish ecosystem was larger. There were more people, uh, comparatively, in terms of the national population. There was it was it was a very big thing in Spain partly i guess it may have to do with the fact that spain had a very high unemployment rate particularly among young people we, we, it was something it was over 40% of young people being unemployed and others being subemployed or, or in precarious employment so that was another factor as well people with with lots of different skills but with with time on their hands and desperate enough to say well this is this is not working this these, these austerity austerity politics and not working uh we've got to we've we've got to do more so it's so it was partly to do with uh, the sheer scale of the operation in Spain uh, but also
1: economic economic factors in speaking about field theory you've written that um the larger the number of issues at stake, the greater the risk of field fragmentation and dispersal. Could this idea explain the criticism of the Occupy movement more generally, that it was without sufficient focus? Is is that fair or relevant? I
2: think that's a fair criticism, and its it was similar for the Indignados movement in Spain. Um, what happened, for some reason, I haven't done the comparative study, but um, I can... Tentatively say at this point that perhaps what happened in the Spanish case is that after this, the square occupation phase, the Spanish somehow managed to be more pragmatic in their in their initiative. There were three there were three or four uh, initiatives. Uh, for example, there's there's one known as uh, PAH. The I'll say it in Spanish, Plataforma de Afectados por las Hipotecas. Uh, try and translate that. It was a platform, it was a a, a large group of people fighting uh, for the rights of uh, people who'd been evicted from their homes for not being able to keep up with the, their mortgage payments. So affected by the, the, the bust of the property uh, sector, people essentially being left out in the street because they couldn't keep up with... Uh, mortgages that have been offered to them under quite dubious conditions in many cases. There was this this, fin- uh, this property bubble uh, fostered by the banks. So that uh, platform was very effective at, at at preventing, not only at preventing physically the, the police from evicting people. Uh, that was one, one effective part of the strategy. But they were very good as well at uh, demonstrating... They had a very strong... Mm, public relations. Um, They were media savvy. Uh, That dimension was was strong as well. And they were very good at showing that this was not just a matter of people who'd been reckless in in borrowing too much money, that this was a systemic, it was a scam, essentially, uh, that had affected a lot of people. And making it, turning public opinion towards this problem and saying well the government and society should do something about this this is not not acceptable that's one example of a number of five six very effective pragmatic um initiatives that 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 were not ideologically driven they were more to do with showing the injustices uh, at work in in the political economy.
1: You've alluded to this before and and spoken about this too, about how every every sub-world in uh, nerd politics has a central democratic ideal. I'm wondering what what are the differences and the similarities between these uh, ideologies?
2: Yeah, this was a very exciting finding, at least for me, towards the end of writing the book. I realised that the the world of nerd politics, what I I call this, the social world of nerd politics, uh, with its four sub-worlds or four corners of this world, namely social protests, digital rights, data activism, and, and formal politics, each of these corners of the world of nerd politics had its own democratic ideal. I didn't expect this to, to be the case. So, for example, the, the sub-world or the social space of um, digital rights... It's, it's all about liberal democracy, the notion that uh, digital rights are human rights, uh, whereas the the subworld of uh, data activism uh, subscribes to the ideal of, of a monetary democracy which is this is a term by, coined by the political theorist Keen, um who who talks about a monetary democracy as a system in which citizens have the ability to track or keep an eye on what the powerful are doing through uh, various forms of transparency and for nerds specifically through open data through um making governments and corporations be more transparent about their own Practices about how they collect data and so on. Then the the world of social protest has the uh, what I call the assembly democracy ideal, uh, an ideal of democracy that goes back to the ancient Greeks of the agora of being physically co-present in an occupied space. Now that ideal was exciting initially. It was it was uh, it was a very powerful moment when the squares were initially occupied, but over time the more sceptical or critical nerds began to question whether that could scale up, as they would say. How do we scale up from these small square assemblies to a mass society? And that's when they they made the decision to, some of them made the decision to go for uh, formal politics, which is a space that has its own ideal, namely participatory democracy. How do we use uh, digital media and other uh, various forms of uh, engagement to uh, make people, ordinary citizens, part of not only of, of discussing issues but also deliberating and and, and decision making.
1: It's great now the, when you've got that central. Polarity or that thing dividing, uh, dividing the compass, and you've got your cardinal points. You can then begin to place your cultures amongst those various points. And uh, I mean, it's interesting. You can think about Indonesia, and there's you know no radical left-wing history left after right. the 60s, really. Yeah. But they've got a really high participatory rate in data, open data. Yeah. And so they, and I think you tell the story about um, the, an election in the. 2000s or uh, 2014
2: the kawal pemilo story yeah i can tell you that story briefly that was um when there was if you remember a few years ago 2014 there was a very heavily contested presidential election in indonesia it was it was neck and neck it was the authoritarian uh candidate praboa who was part of the old suhata regime who'd been um, uh, who come, came from that background uh, against the first ever non-elite candidate, uh, grassroots candidate uh, Joko Widodo, known as Jokowi, who was, if you like, the candidate representing reform uh, and uh, democratic reform. Uh, so what happened is that a number of a group of nerds, of technology nerds, uh, all of them living overseas, all of them, in, all four of them, Indonesian. They became increasingly concerned about the possibility that the the vote count may be rigged, so they thought, "How can we use our technical skills to be able to monitor the the vote count and make sure that there are no so called irregularities um, they They soon realized that they needed manpower they couldn 't the, the four of them, however smart and and i t skilled that they were they needed to do something that nerds are very good at, which is to rally a crowd around them. So they they, rally, they recruited 700 volunteers through social media, through their own personal contacts. But they had to make sure they weren't infiltrated by people wanting to derail this, this whole process of, of counting the vote. And they, they actually managed for, for several weeks to carry out this, this mass labor of counting the vote using... Uh, sophisticated technology as well but the important point to remember here as the Indonesian scholar Merlina Lim has emphasized is that it wasn't just because of the, these nerds it was also because uh, the Indonesian government there'd been a, a campaign for over 10 years to get the Indonesian government to go towards open government to open up uh, and make publicly available uh, in this case, electoral data. It was thanks to that combination of a long-term process of going towards more open forms of government and then the very agile, short-term action of these nerds that we had the the success story. In this case, it has a happy ending because they demonstrated that the election was actually clean. They came up with the same results as the Electoral Commission practically the same count. And even the opposition, even the the losers, the Prabowo camp, uh, Jokowi won, the pro, the more more sort of pro-democracy candidate or or reformist candidate, I should say, won the the election. And they reluctantly admitted the other party that it had been a a clean election eventually.
1: So there's a place for the slow burn activists alongside the agile activists together. They work very well together. Exactly.
2: And we need non-nerds to join in as well, to, to work with, with nerds.
1: I just I need to understand that story a little more. So are they monitoring the electoral process live, or are they doing a post-event analysis of the votes? Um, and how does the comparison help? I mean, if the data already has been fudged before it's hit the, uh, um, the mainframe... I mean, is it too late to sort of monitor
2: debauchery? The way the uh, the this initiative is 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 called uh, Kawal Pemilu, election guardians. The, the way it happened is that after the the vote had closed, um, there were there were rumours. There were there was a, a lot of concern about uh, c- competing claims. Both camps were saying that there had been irregularities. So they never the the activists didn't go back to that that period what they what what they then the best they could do was look at how those those votes were counted we don't know to what extent you know irregularities happened before the actual vote but what we do know is that the count itself was was clean
1: this is an unfair question it's a, the hard one how does your work help us? um does it show how movements are successful does it create a model for future activism
2: well i I, I can't really claim there is a model. The, the The book maps out these four spaces of nerd politics. Uh, I I hope it will help in having an understanding of this world that was there in in, in plain sight that that hadn't been conceptualized until now. So I'm hoping that one positive thing will that it will help as some kind of navigational tool or or map for people to locate their own activism, or if they're not activists, to understand better what's happening and how they can be part of that. Say, for example, someone is concerned about privacy uh, or other digital rights, of online freedom of expression and so on in different countries. They'll be able to find examples in the book of initiatives that in some cases are highly creative. Uh, there are successes and failures. It's not all uh, a success story. I, I also cover some of the the failures, uh, but it will help through precisely through the storytelling we we mentioned earlier. It will give people some examples of of things to try out.
1: You recently spoke at the, the University of Melbourne, but you didn't focus on the larger actors such as WikiLeaks and Anonymous, nor Edward Snowden, Julian Assange or Chelsea Manning. So what place do actors like that um, have on political change?
2: They have an ambiguous position within my book in that they're, they're certainly very important. Uh, but there's been so much media attention paid to these actors that I felt that part of my job was to draw attention to less famous Activists, but they certainly play a very important part, both in the world of nerd politics and in in the book. To give you an example uh, from Edward Snowden, one of the examples I discuss is from the secondary reading uh, on on Brazil. Some of the secondary research that I've done on Brazil, this fantastic PhD thesis by a guy called Dan O'Malley, who's worked on internet freedom activism in Brazil. And what happened in Brazil is a quite a fascinating story. Um, the then president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, was uh, dragging her feet in 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 the in the field of digital rights. There'd been a very active campaign to legislate in favour of um, internet freedom. Uh, some very creative activists had come up with this idea of an internet bill of rights, which would have been. Groundbreaking internationally, so that was going quite well until Dilma succeeded uh, Lula as as President of Brazil, uh, and the the campaign wasn't going very well until the Snowden revelations of NSA uh, mass surveillance around the world showed that the u s government had been monitoring Dilma's own mobile phone communications. So when that happened, Overnight she reawakened her, her old guerrilla self and and became uh, an evangelist for digital rights and she said okay we've got to go back to the to this internet bill of rights uh, this is not acceptable uh, the US is supposed to be a friendly country we need to defend privacy suddenly overnight she became a a, a digital rights nerd or or part-time nerd so to speak and She transformed that anger into political will. Eventually, the bill got passed. It it was legislated. It it, it was signed into law. And there was a big event to celebrate it where even the inventor of the World Wide Web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, he was there. And it was celebrated as as a global breakthrough. So through that roundabout way, we see different actions, something that may happen in this corner of the nerd politics world may end up having an effect on this other corner, both geographically and, and in terms of topics as well.
1: Damn you, World Wide Web. You're just connecting us all. Um, during your time travelling, researching, interviewing, writing, what's been the most surprising thing?
2: I was very surprised when the activists I was working with in Barcelona came up with the idea of a a data theatre. They had asked the general public to leak data on one of the main banks in Spain, Bankia, that had collapsed after the 2008 crisis and had been bailed out at huge cost to EU and Spanish taxpayers because it was too big to fail, as the phrase goes. So, because of their theatrical expertise and various other forms of clamping expertise, they thought, well why don 't we uh, put out the message out there that uh, ordinary citizens can actually take on the system and they can put these crooks these uh, these banksters in in jail, which is what the these activists did the ex net activists so what they did is that they used the leaked emails as the dialogue in the play they wrote a play based on the verbatim rendition of those of those emails, so they made the, these bankers uh the 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 actors who were playing the bankers were having this conversation on stage, which was word by word lifted from the emails uh it was uh, great fun to to watch to follow. And people came out of the play saying, well, I had no idea this was going on, and, and we've got to do something about the so-called 1%. So I was, I thought that was a remarkable example of creativity, a very uh, interesting form of data activism.
1: Look, I do like the way you snuck in the term banksters. Just quietly, you just threw it in there like no one would notice. I let's, just,
2: let's just assume that's the right to... Yeah, let's call them that and... Uh, yeah.
1: Finally, um, next time I participate in a pro-democracy movement, next time I'm marching, picketing, protesting or occupying, what do you want me to think about?
2: I would want you to think about the fact that there are two forms of political action. One of them is sustainable political action, something that will take time to develop and that will need to be institutionalized and supported over time. But there are also short-term, unsustainable actions that are equally valid. We have this bias towards sustainability. It's it's a word. No one has a bad word to say about this word. Everything should be sustainable. But certain actions can't be sustainable. Sometimes we need to act quickly, get something done. The timescale will depend. I would say both are equally valid. John
1: Postel, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. That was great. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thanks to Dr. John Postel, Senior Lecturer in Communication at RMIT University. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights, was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on September 4, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Dr. Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall eavesdrop on experts is licensed under creative commons copyright 2018 the university of melbourne if you enjoyed this podcast drop us a review on itunes and check out the rest of the eavesdrop episodes in our archive i'm chris Hatzis, producer and editor join us again next time for another eavesdrop on experts